Coming soon in the spring of 2024, Dr. Paul Zeitz, physician, epidemiologist, and tenacious award-winning advocate for global justice and human rights, will be releasing his groundbreaking handbook, Revolutionary Optimism, Seven Steps for Living as a Love-Centered Activist. Revolutionary optimism galvanizes us on the path of self-liberation and invites us to unify with others to catalyze our collective liberation. Together, we can create a brighter tomorrow for all humanity, all life on Earth, and for all future generations. Stay tuned for information on how to pre-order your copy. Revolutionary Optimism, Seven Steps for Living as a Love-Centered Activist. Coming soon to inspire you. It's go time! Welcome to Revolutionary Optimism. Living at this time in history, we are challenged with the convergence of crises that is affecting our daily lives. Issues like economic hardship, a teetering democracy, and the worsening climate emergency have left many Americans feeling more despair than ever. To respond to the challenging times we're living through, physician, humanitarian, and social justice advocate, Dr. Paul Zeitz has identified a new syndrome called revolutionary optimism. It's an infectious, contagious, self-created way of thinking and living on a path of love, where you unleash your personal power and you hashtag unify with others to build movements that catalyze bold and transformational political action for our collective repair, justice, and peace. In this episode, he'll be talking about rapidly achieving racial equity and justice in the United States with Representative Barbara Lee, who's represented California's 12th district for the last 25 years. Now, she is running for U.S. Senate to take over the seat being vacated by Senator Dianne Feinstein. Representative Lee leads congressional efforts to end racism in the United States, combat the global AIDS pandemic, and advance reproductive rights and gender equality, among many others. She has also published a memoir titled Renegade for Peace and Justice. Here's your host, Dr. Paul Zeitz. Welcome, Congresswoman Lee. Thanks for joining the podcast today. I'm hoping that we can have a heart-to-heart conversation. Is it okay if I call you Barbara? Please do. Okay. I'm feeling so excited and emotional to have you on my podcast today. We first met over nearly 25 years ago in South Africa at the International AIDS Conference at the time when 3 million people each year under 45 years of age were dying in Africa. And you you led congressional efforts to mobilize the political will for the United States to invest in the quest to end global AIDS. And nearly 60 million lives have been saved since then from the work that you led on creating the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria, and and PEPFAR as well. This is your leadership legacy. You truly are a renegade for peace and justice. (laughs) So thank you again for joining the show. (laughs) Thank you, Paul. You know, I I remember uh, meeting you, and I remember the conference in uh, South Africa. That was Durban, right? Yeah, Durban, South Africa, exactly, yeah. Yeah. And remember, everyone had on yellow T-shirts, finally, uh, to to, uh, display the fact that it was uh, okay to talk about HIV and AIDS. And I believe the T-shirts read, I am positive, or... Right, right. Those were from the Treatment Action Campaign. Yeah. That was the uh, brand, you know, the messaging that they were trying to get across to destigmatize and de-shameize people that were living with HIV and AIDS. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. And and remember, we were in session, 
Uh, and th this is actually the beginning. So I just want to put in context what happened. Uh, we were in session, and I don't like to miss boats. So I, I flew all the way to Durban, South Africa for 24 hours. Uh, right. <laughs> and then I flew back. And I flew back at a moment, and, and the press was covering, finally, right. uh, the conference. And so I flew back, and I called uh, a special order where members of Congress, after seeing the press and after I talked to them, came down to the floor one by one by one. We've got to get that footage and talked about what we have to do something. Uh, and it was the media that really uh, showed the, what was taking place, and people weren't aware of the pandemic. And so finally, the Durban conference turned that around. And then during that 24-hour time I was there, at the same time in Congress, we were working on uh, the appropriations bill. And when I came back, right. uh, I was talking with uh, now, well, now uh, Nan former Speaker Nancy Pelosi, mm -hmm. and she told me, "Look, they tried to take out um, for I think it was forty two million out of the global health uh, HIV AIDS account, uh, and um, think about trying to put that back in." And so I authored an amendment. This was like twenty four hours after the Durban <laughs> conference. I authored an amendment brought that amendment to the floor and got that 42 million restored in the budget. Wow. And, and that was because of the conference and because of the media coverage and because finally people were waking up to what was taking place. And that was unheard of. Exactly. And you, that step that you took, wow, began a whole process of your leadership on the Hill to actually mobilize billions of dollars to save millions of lives. So truly honored to have you here today and thank you for your leadership. You know, I wanted to, I had a chance to reread your memoir, Renegade for Justice and Peace, Peace and Justice, rather, and I really enjoyed it again. I had read it before when you first gave it to me. And I wanted to uh, just ask you if you could share something personal, maybe something you haven't ever told before about your own personal significant or impactful lived experience of racism and how it affected you and how it clarified something inside of you that led you to this work on racial justice? Oh boy, my whole life <laughs> as a child and an adult has led me to this point. Uh, but there was, I don't know if I wrote about this in the book, Paul, but you know, and, and it's so important today, uh, hair. I, uh, as a child, had um, sort of curly hair. And you know, then standards of beauty were uh, straight hair. You, you mm. had to look uh, white. You, and so black girls, wanted to have uh, not curly hair or kinky hair, but uh, straight hair. And so, and my mother's hair was fairly curly uh, and she braided our hair and mm. I wanted my hair and, and we used to wear Shirley Temple curls and all of that, but I wanted my hair to be straight like white girls uh, wow. because that was the um, sign that I fit in and that I was, you know, okay. Right. And uh, that hair thing really was troubling for me as a child because every which way I tried, I couldn't get my hair quite straight enough to look white enough. And so finally, uh, you know, now, of course, I wear my hair natural, curly, whatever. And we're working on the Crown Act, which says you cannot be discriminated against based on how you wear your hair or what you, your cultural kind of, uh, you know, approach to, to hair. But as a child, that was very uh, traumatic because, you know, I wanted to look like 
all these other girls looked in, in Texas, you know, in El Paso, because only 2% of the population then um, was black. And uh, as I grew up, it was like, wait a minute, you know, I don't have, that's not my standard of beauty. Uh, you know, and when I ended up at Mills College, uh, I had, I, w- I wore my hair in this huge afro. I mean, it was like <laughs> larger than Angela Davis's, right? I mean, big, wow. big, big. And from that day forward, I've worn my hair the way I want to wear it. You know, sometimes I may blow dry it, but most of the times I just, you know, wash it and leave it natural and do whatever I want to do it. And the point is, people need to be able to wear their hair the way they want to wear their hair and not be discriminated against. And so when I saw in the newspaper uh, probably 10 years ago that the military was going to penalize black women and men for wearing their hair in braids and in cornrows and other types of ethnic styles that they were going to penalize them. I came back and I remember then uh, the chair of the Black Caucus was Marsha Fudge, our, our great secretary of HUD. And I said, look, and I brought that article back. It was front page USA Today. And it hit me. I said, this can't happen. We've got to stop this. And so I led the letter from the Black Caucus women to the, uh, I think it was Secretary of Army. It was either the Army or the Air Force to say, stop this. This has got to stop. We want a response from you. And within 30 days, we received a written response from that secretary saying, not only are we going to stop this here, stop this practice here, We've sent this out to all of the different services, the Army, the Air Force, the Marines, uh, to, to not to repeal these policies. And so I felt really good about that. But during that time, I thought about my childhood and how awful that was and what currently is being done. So now uh, we have legislation, federal legislation, that's similar to the legislation we passed here in California. And it's called the Crown Act to right. make sure that... Um, Women and men of whatever background don't get uh, discriminated against or penalized. And these children sometimes, because of the way they wear their hair, they get expelled from school. I mean, this is wrong. And, yeah. um, and so fast forward to 2023, we're still dealing with it. But that was an experience I had as a child. And I don't know if I wrote about it in my book, but when <laughs> you raised this. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a great example of your own lived experience had a big impact on you. You felt limited or restricted or by the culture of racism that we live in and you like fast forward to your, when you're a Congresswoman, you then take action and make uh, tra- bring transformation forward. So that's a good segue. Cause I really want to fast forward uh, to uh, May 26, 2020, nearly three years ago when we witnessed the murder of George Floyd by police officers. And you at that time were a strong supporter of reparations. You had been uh, championing that for many years uh, when you entered Congress, and uh, in, in response to the George Floyd uh, racial reckoning phase, you immediately, within a week, uh, proposed the creation of a U.S. National Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Commission, or a Truth Commission, to investigate the role of the federal government in past and current systems of racism that oppress people of color living in the United States. So I'm really curious about what was going on for you in your heart and mind at that moment that brought you the clarity to introduce that that legislation? Well, thanks, Paul. And thank you for your help. I mean, this is, uh, it shouldn't be controversial, but for some it is because it's about truth telling. And, you know, in America, 
when it comes to uh, systemic racism and when, when it comes to the impacts of uh, being enslaved for over 250 years, people like DeSantos and others try to deny that history. And so you've helped us uh, get this far and we're moving forward with this commission. You know, it's important to recognize that countries around the world, I think 41, 42 countries, after crimes against humanity, after slavery, after injustices against people, these commissions are established and the uh, Institute for Peace, the United States Institute for Peace, which we fund through the appropriations process, helps sets up these commissions. And these commissions are desperately needed uh, here in the United States. And that's why I introduced this um, bill uh, during this period, because what I learned was that when Mr. Floyd was, was killed, even uh, progressives couldn't understand how this could happen. People who thought they were progressive and understood the history of, of, of uh, systemic racism were shocked to see this. And I'm saying, wait a minute. Uh, this is uh, an example of the legacy of slavery and an example of how systemic racism is embedded in the DNA of this country and all of its policies. And you saw this, you witnessed this on the video. And people called me saying, what is going on, Barbara? What is happening? What, why? And I'm saying, what do you mean, why? So I said, I looked and saw the, how the commissions around the world uh, were established. And bottom line is this country's never had a truth-telling moment, especially as it relates to uh, people of color, specifically um, African-Americans uh, and the Middle Passage and the impact of Jim Crow, slavery, mm. the uh, Reconstruction, you know, uh, lynchings. Lynchings didn't end until, what, in the 60s. And so we have uh, these systems that um, deny, that are, that are dehumanizing, and they need to be dealt with, and people in our country don't know that. And so we have to have the truth-telling moment, and I'm glad that certain communities around the country, including my own state, has set up uh, reparations task forces and, and committees where people are coming forward now to talk about the impact of being enslaved. And so I think it's important that this country have a national commission so we can bring forth the descendants of those who are still living with those impacts forward so the entire country can understand its responsibility to repair the damage. And so that's truth telling. And that's the only way you tell the truth. Then you're, you have the space to heal. People can talk. People can get together and really understand each other's truths. And then we move forward to, to figure out how we repair the damage through a reparations process. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you for your leadership on that. And uh, I would like to hear how you're feeling today. Are you optimistic that the federal government is going to take action anytime soon, either through Congress or through the presidential executive order or whatever way we can move this forward? Yep. I have to be optimistic. First of all, I wouldn't be doing this if I'm not optimistic. You know, the political dynamics are challenging. But we, we're building a grassroots movement, Paul, around the country, as you know, and you've helped with that. Uh, and, yes. you know, we have politics we have to deal with both internally and externally. But that's not going to stop us. This is so important, this work. Other, you know, we've had movements where we've made a heck of a lot of progress. John Lewis, our beloved warrior for justice, he was one of the first persons that signed on as a co-sponsor to HR, then it was HR 19, the Truth, uh, Racial Healing and Transformation Commission. And right. we, I think, built up to about 160, 170 co-sponsors. Uh, and I know the White House uh, had been interested in it. 
And so we have to figure out our strategies, but we're working daily to do that so we can move forward. And so, yeah, I'm optimistic. Is it going to happen tomorrow? No. But as Dr. King said, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it does bend toward justice. And people have to understand this is not a sprint. This is a marathon if you're really going to make this country live up to its creed of liberty and justice for all. Well said. Thank you for that inspiring uh, message. And, you know, I want to just ask you personally, do you ever get despairing? Do you ever feel hopeless when you see critical race theory being uh, propped up, when you hear the former president talking racist slurs all the time? Do you ever feel, do you ever get despondent? And then how, and how do you turn yourself around in, when you're in that moment of despair? Paul, uh, uh, black women don't fall into these moments of despair. We've had a history in this country of fighting. And I think every time we see something that's going to hurt not only the black community, but the country, we uh, say, hey, and still we rise, we're gonna fight back. Uh, so I don't get, uh, some people ask me, aren't you frustrated? I'm saying, wait a minute, uh, you, you know, it's not in me to be frustrated. Paul DeSantis and Donald Trump, all these racists, all these white supremacists, even with my sitting on the floor and had to evacuate on January 6th, I'm more determined to fight more than ever. Uh, this is about the future of generations. This is about our children. This is about making sure this country becomes the country that everyone uh, thought it was. Uh, and we see now where those gaps are. And we see now a moment where young people especially are coming together to, to make these changes on climate, on racial justice, on uh, housing, on uh, immigration reform, on all of the issues. So no, it just makes me stronger. And again, as Dr. Maya Angelou said, and still I rise. Rise, 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 exactly. So on January 6th, you were in the, uh, you were in the House of Representatives. Can you just give us a, a, a moment of like what happened and how you were feeling and how that led to your passion for action? You know, that was a horrible moment. First of all, it was horrible because uh, staff members, uh, the workers, members of Congress were almost killed. And I was sitting on the floor as a member of leadership when the calls came for us to hit the ground that this mob was in the uh, house. I, I believe they were outside of the door, not too far away from the house chamber. Right, they were outside the doors, right there, the at doors. the antechamber. Yeah. Coming in when we were on the uh, floor, they were heading in that direction. And of course, right. we were told to put on our gas masks. And when I tell people gas masks, they cringe like gas masks. I'm saying, That's kind of normal for us. Fortunately, we didn't have to use them, but we were told to put them on. And <laughs> I put mine on backwards at first, had to ask for help to put it on the right way. Uh, then after that, we were told we didn't have enough time because they were heading in. So we had to evacuate very quickly. And it was a very mm. uh, scary moment. You've seen the pictures. It, it's um, a moment where we were at the height of COVID and the Republicans, many Republicans would not wear masks. So uh, we had to uh, exit to an undisclosed location through a very narrow path downstairs uh, and we were stuck together with uh, unmasked people. Several members got COVID. Uh, and, mm. uh, it was um, an attack on our democracy. And, and from day one, I said it was an attempted coup, which is what it was. And now I think all of the facts have been, well, so a lot of the facts have been laid out publicly to see, first of yeah. all, the dangers 
to to people and and how people almost were killed at the Capitol, but also how our democracy was uh, almost shattered and destroyed. But we withstood that and came back onto the floor until the wee hours of the morning. There were very few members left, but I sat there until we finally did the final count of Electoral mm. College. It was like 3, 3.30 a.m. And I was determined to sit there until that happened. But it was terrifying, and the trauma that everyone experienced there who had to escape is real. I, it, you know, and I'm by background is mental health. I'm a by profession clinical social worker. I have my MSW, and um, right. I know what trauma does. So that weekend, uh, <laughs> I stayed in Washington D.C., and for some reason, um, I decided and I collect pens, like you know, writing pens, like you would not believe. <laughs> I sat up and and wrote my name probably 500 times with a different pen. Just, wow. it was a weird reaction. <laughs> but that got me through that weekend by myself, just writing my name with all those pens, trying to figure out which pen was working, which wasn't. So at least I was able to declutter a bit. <laughs> and then now... Yeah, and you were processing. It was a form of uh, self-awareness uh, of your own body and you're the risk that you took by being there and uh, you were processing the trauma. Yeah. 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 And now I'm uh, one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit that the NAACP asked us to join. Actually, uh, I, uh, the lead plaintiff in the uh, lawsuit against Donald Trump and the Proud Boys for uh, mm. their attempts to uh, wreak havoc uh, and that no one is above the, the basic premise of the lawsuit is that no one is above the law. Donald Trump does not have immunity, and we're taking them to court for damages. And we've gotten through uh, the lower court, and we're just waiting now uh, to move forward with this lawsuit. And I'm determined uh, that we're going to win this lawsuit. Fantastic. One last question. All these life experiences that you've had have empowered your political leadership. And so now I'm so excited that you're running for Senate in California and hopeful that you'll make it through and, and become a U.S. senator. In, when, if that happens and when that happens, how will you explain to your colleagues and to the country for why a truth commission is a top priority for healing the soul of America? Well, you know, um, Senator Cory Booker is our uh, Senate author, and I'm going to continue doing that in the Senate. I'm, you know, I'm going to go one by one. You know, in the Senate, uh, I will have a huge megaphone, being one of 100. And uh, the dynamics are totally different there. And in fact, I will continue to organize on the outside. You know, there's states that have many people of color that many senators uh, need to hear from. And so I will definitely continue with this work and organize and make sure that the Senate understands how necessary this is because their constituents uh, understand that we have to have this truth-telling moment in America, which uh, will allow us to begin to heal which I know the majority of people of conscience and moral, uh, you know, who have moral compasses want. And I think there are more of us than the MAGA Republicans. And I think we just have to talk and explain the history of what has taken place in this country to members of the Senate, like we had with members of the House. Uh, again, we had early on 160 co-sponsors plus. And so it's, it's going to take a while, but I'm going to continue this work in the Senate. And for those listening, I hope you all will help us out and help us win this uh, because we do have a path to victory and we're going to pull this off.
Wow, that was a very inspiring conversation with Congresswoman Lee. As you now know, revolutionary optimism is a new syndrome that I've discovered within myself, and I've realized it is an infectious, contagious, and self-created way of thinking and living on the path of love where you unleash your personal power in whatever way you choose. So before we go today, let's take a moment to share a quick checkup and diagnostic review on how Representative Lee is leading by living as a revolutionary optimist. First of all, Representative Lee shared many examples of how she transforms her personal lived experience of injustice and racism into her top legislative priorities. She talked about that with her hair and then the legislation that she's introduced to protect people's right to wear their hair as they choose. She also talked about that in terms of her commitment to ending global AIDS and her commitment to global health and reproductive health. These are things uh, from her lived experience that she uh, has prioritized as part of her uh, life. And also her own experience as a black woman has really driven her leadership uh, for reparative justice efforts to be implemented, including uh, reparations and truth-telling. Secondly, Representative Lee is relentless in seeking large funding to drive action for people. So she, Representative Lee, knows from her life's experience that you can talk about solutions, but until you mobilize funding and money into those solutions, then it won't have the people-level impact. We heard that uh, extensively in her uh, work on global AIDS and on many of the other issues that she's working on. She understands how to imagine funding through high-impact programs that can have an impact for people. And lastly, uh, Representative Lee is a fighter for peace and justice. And frankly, she doesn't have time for despair or frustration in the face of injustices that she experiences or witnesses or any opposition against her her ideas. As a black woman, she said she rises and rises again and keeps on fighting no matter what the odds are. So my prognosis for Representative Lee is that she is a strong revolutionary optimist and her service to her constituents is poised to expand and flourish in the years ahead. Please join me and unify with her and others to build movements that catalyze bold and transformational political action for our collective repair, justice, and peace. Are you ready to be part of the revolution? To learn more about revolutionary optimism, please visit drpaulzeitz.org. To explore building movements, please visit unifymovements.org. Revolutionary Optimism, Transforming the World, one episode at a time.